I was listening to a podcast recently. It was a podcast. He was interviewing an astronaut who had been uh, in space several times on the space station, different things like that. Uh, Mike Massimino was his name. And he was talking about the, uh, the, the stars and the way the stars look different uh, once you leave the atmosphere. Uh, he, he made the point that the reason that stars appear to twinkle uh, in the sky is because the atmosphere interferes with the light and it distorts it a little bit as it comes to us. But, but this astronaut said that once you leave the atmosphere, you don't have that distortion. And he said the stars when you're in space uh, are, are perfect points of light. They're absolutely clear uh, as they come to you because they don't have to go through the filter of, of the atmosphere. You know, the world around us can in some ways become like the atmosphere in that it tends to muddle our vision. It, it tends to make our vision unclear. And what it often does is it, it, it offers us counterfeit views of what joy is or what goodness is or what our identity is as people. It, it can convince us that we are the center of the universe, right? We hear this a lot, uh, that, that we should be free to be anything we want to be because we make the rules. It's about us and it's about what we want. But that's not what we're made for, is it? And it even spills over into the church. Look, look I mean, let me be honest. I would love it if church looked exactly the way I wanted it to look in every instance. But that's not reality, is it? It's a distortion of reality because the reality is it's not about me. And so we need to go higher if we want to see things as they really are. We need to go higher if we want to see uh, God as he really is. And then by extension to see ourselves as we really are. Well, in these climactic verses of chapters 9 through 11, Paul is going to clarify our vision. And he's going to do it by revealing what he calls a mystery. Now, mystery in, in Paul is a, it's a revealing of something that was previously unknown uh, or hidden. It's like the, if you think about uh, the unveiling of a sculpture, it's the pulling back of the sheet to reveal what was there but was previously unseen, what we didn't previously understand. And so what Paul's going to do is he's going to give us a glimpse of what God is doing all through salvation history, all through history. He's going to unveil God's plan and his intent. Now that's important because when we see that, we're going to see that there is so much more going on than we might think or comprehend. God is sovereign, and He's good. And that's something that we need to be reminded of because our vision often gets skewed. And when it gets distorted and skewed, we end up missing out on joy that God intends us to experience. So what does Paul say here about God's grand plan in history? And what does it mean for us today? 
That's what I want us to, to think about. The mystery here that Paul is going to uncover, that he is going to unfold, clarifies for us that history is his story. History is God's story. It's not ours. Now make no mistake, when we leave these verses, when we leave Parg's verses next week, God is the center of history. He is sovereignly working out his plan. And so Paul is going to pull back the veil to reveal something that we don't expect as we look at things the way they stand. And that is that God hasn't given up on Israel as an ethnic people. Now, so let's look at verses 25 to 27. He says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. There's three elements here that Paul says make up this mystery. And taken together, uh, they reveal the way in which God is going to work out his plan in history. He's going to do it through a sequence of events in history. Now make a note, <laughs> we have the words of God here through the Apostle Paul who unveils what he's doing in history. We even have them translated in English so we can read them. And yet, let me be just, just be honest here, no one really fully understands exactly what Paul is talking about. This leads us into verses 33 to 36, where Paul has to confess that, that God is the one who is wise. God is the one who is unsearchable. It's not us. But let's think about the three parts of this mystery that Paul uncovers as we look at the text. The first is in the third part of verse 25. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Now this isn't new. If you've been with us the past several weeks, we've seen that what Paul is looking at in his day, he has called a partial hardening. That is that some in ethnic Israel have been hardened. Remember back a couple of weeks ago to chapter 11, verse 7, you had Israel as a nation, you had the elect, and then you had the rest. And the rest were hardened. So we've already seen that there's a partial hardening that is occurring among Israel. It's partial, not in the sense that every individual Israelite was like 60% hardened or 70% hardened. It's partial in the sense of a, a subset of the whole. So if there is a, an elect among national Israel and there is the rest who are hardened, whose hearts have been calcified. But we saw last week that it's not total, it's not all of them, and it's not forever. The timing is limited. It lasts, and this is the second part of the, the mystery that we see at the end of verse 25, it lasts until 
the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, the, 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 the salvation of the elect Gentiles is going to precede whatever God is doing, is going to do uh, in the nation of Israel. In verse 25 there. That word until, he says until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That word until carries with it the idea of a reversal that takes place in time. So it's up to the point of or as far as. If you were going to go into Northern Ireland, you would be in the Republic of Ireland until you crossed the border into the north. And once you cross the border, there's this reversal where you're no, you were in Ireland and you now are no longer in the Republic of Ireland. And this is the way Paul's using that word. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until, and now something's going to shift, until, and this is the marker, the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now that doesn't mean, I don't think, that a hardening is going to occur until all of the Gentiles have heard the message of the gospel. I think it points to a specific predetermined number of people, number of Gentiles who will receive the gospel. I think that's why he uses the phrase enters in or comes in. When the full number of Gentiles enter into the kingdom, something's going to happen. Once that full number are saved, verse 26, in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, one commentator, Douglas Moo, he said that verse 26, first part of 26, that is the center of the storm when it comes to understanding what Paul is doing here. Every word in that phrase is disputed among New Testament scholars. Uh, it's a really difficult thing to understand, and there's a lot of impact. But I want to give you what I think Paul means here in, when he says, in this way, all Israel will be saved. First, he says, in this way. I think this points to the, the manner, the way in which Israel is going to experience salvation. But what we've seen is that the way in which Israel is going to be saved involves a sequence of time. Remember, Paul said a partial hardening will occur until the fullness of the Gentiles enters. And in this way. So how is Israel going to experience salvation? It's going to come as a result of what God does in a sequence within history. There's a time element there as well as uh, a, a, a manner, the way in which God is going to work. There's going to be a hardening until the full number of Gentiles enter and then all Israel will be saved. Now, in verse 26, when he says, all Israel will be saved, most everyone agrees that Paul is thinking about a salvation for Israel. Most everyone agrees that. The question and the dispute comes in, what does he mean by Israel? What does he mean when he says, all Israel will be saved? Some take it that he means every Jew that's ever lived in history. Some take it that he means the remnant of Israel 
that are saved along with the Gentiles in what we would call the church age. And some argue that Paul is thinking about a future ingathering of ethnic Israel that's going to take place at the end of time before Christ returns. So there's, I mean, there's lots of different views on what Paul means here. I, I don't think that Paul means that every individual Israelite in history is going to be saved. Remember, Paul's talked about hardening. He's talked about hearts that have been calcified and, and hardened to spiritual things. And there's no indication that when Paul has thought about the hardening of hearts, there's no indication that he anticipates a, a, a softening that will come later. You know, we've said in previous weeks that when God hardens a heart, that is an act of judgment, whereby he seals a person in their sin and they are lost and, and destined for a final judgment. It's an act of justice. So I don't think that historical view is the best one. Now, it could be that Paul is pointing to a remnant, that remnant that's being saved alongside of Gentiles. That's possible. I think the context argues against that. Uh, While we definitely see, remember last week when Adam preached, we definitely see uh, one people of God, one olive tree. Remember, and God is taking branches off and putting branches on. I think that Paul has been really careful here in these chapters to draw a distinction between Gentiles and Israel. He's referred to Israel about 10 times in these chapters, and in each of them he's referred to national Israel or ethnic Jews when he's talked about Israel. So I think that that's probably the best way to understand it. Even as recently as verses 24 and 25 when he talks about Israel, he's thinking about the nation of Israel. He's thinking about ethnic Israel. So Paul doesn't seem to be blending Jews and Gentiles here in these verses. Now, we'll come back to that in a minute. I think the best way to understand when he says all Israel will be saved, I think it's best to understand that as a future ingathering of ethnic Jews who will respond to Jesus and receive their Messiah. In verse 15, if you look back in chapter 11 to verse 15, If they're thinking about Israel, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? And remember, Adam last week talked about life from the dead is probably best understood as the final resurrection that will take place when Christ returns. And so I think that this is tied to what we saw there that along with the coming of the Deliverer from Zion in verse 26, that there will be a future repentance of Israel, of ethnic Jews, before Christ returns. Again, as Doug, Doug Moose says in his commentary, the present remnant of Israel will be expanded to include a much larger number of Jews who will enter the eternal kingdom along with converted Gentiles. And see, this is what is new. This is why Paul calls this a mystery. Because this is the new element here, is that Israel will have to wait to enjoy the blessings of salvation that God has promised until the very end. 
And so many will be saved through this kind of mass turning to Jesus, but only after everyone else. See, you might have thought, okay, Israel's at the front of the, at the, front of the queue. But Paul says the mystery is, no, Israel's at the back end of the queue. They come after everyone else, all of the Gentiles, after they have received what was promised. See, this wasn't seen until Paul unveiled it in verses 25 and 26. The deliverer will come from Zion, and they, Israel, will experience the gift of salvation in the new covenant through faith. So Israel will be saved. The deliverer will come. He will turn ungodliness and unbelief from Jacob. Now let me just say here, uh, again, make a note. I don't see any political or, uh, or territorial restoration for Israel here in these verses. I don't think that's what Paul's talking about. I don't think he's saying that there will be a, a new political Israel. I think that the blessing of salvation is what is in Paul's view. That there will be among a vast number of ethnic Jews in that day a repentance and a turning to Jesus for salvation through faith. Again, remember this is the answer as we think about chapters 9 to 11. Remember this is the answer the, the ultimate answer to the implied question back in chapter 9, verse 6. Remember, Paul said, it is not as though the word of God has failed. That this, is the, this is the implied answer here. Remember the, the pain, the, the distress that Paul felt in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 9, where he was grieving that Israel, his brothers and sisters as a nation, were lost they were separated from Christ. And this is the answer to that. This is the remedy for that. That one day they will return and there will be a repentance and they will experience the salvation that God has promised. Uh, chapter 11, verse 11. Has God finally rejected his people? Uh, you know, no, he has not. He has not. This is the mystery that all of history is moving from Jewish rejection because of their unbelief. They, they rejected, which led to uh, an, an incoming of Gentiles to experience salvation, which will then lead to a full inclusion of Israel at the end. At the end. All of history is his story. It's his story. It's the story of God extending mercy to all kinds of people. To all kinds of people. Now look, certainly if God had only chosen to save a few from the nation of Israel, it would still represent faithfulness to his promises. This is what Paul argued in chapter 9, wasn't it? But what we see here is that God is going to do so much more than just that. He's going to save many in keeping with his promises to the patriarchs. Look at verses 28 and 29. 
As regards the gospel, they, that is Israel, are enemies of God for your sake. Remember, they rejected, and in their rejection, the Gentiles, the offer went to the Gentiles, and they received it. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the sake of their forefathers. Verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. See, this is what we didn't see coming. This is what we didn't foresee. That God not only was going to save a remnant of Israel along with a whole lot of Gentiles, but that he was going to come back in the end and there was going to be a repentance. Think back with me to the book of Acts, the story of the development of the church. In Acts chapter 13, We see the Apostle Paul and Barnabas out on mission. And in verse 44, Luke writes, The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, and since you rejected it, what does he say? We're going to the Gentiles. We're going to take the the, the message away from you, and we're going to give it to the Gentiles. And then Luke tells us, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul, and they drove them out. And Paul and Barnabas, they shake the dust off of their feet and they go to the Gentiles. And see, if we were looking at the story at that point, we would say, well, that's it. That's it. It's all about the Gentiles now. And see, this is what we miss. God is doing more than that. And this is the mystery that the Apostle Paul unveils here. That God, when the full number of Gentiles have received and and entered the kingdom, that God is going to circle back and there is going to be a repentance among the nation. Now, remember, this is the climax in chapter 11. This is the high point of what Paul is arguing. He's already discussed the remnant. He's already talked about those of Israel that have been hardened. He's building to something greater that is to come in the future. Again, if you think back to verses 13 through 16 of chapter 11, that there's, Paul is setting the stage for something more than what we've already seen. And that is the opportunity for God to show the full extent of his faithfulness. When he brings a bunch of natural branches and grafts them back in to the olive tree through faith. And so the cycle looks like this in verses 30 and 31. They too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. The cycle moves from Gentiles, disobedience, to obedience, and then the Jews experience the same. They're disobedient now, and there will be an obedience to come in the future. Their story doesn't end with disobedience. 
but it moves from obedience back into disobedience. And what does this say about God? This plan that Paul unfolds, what does it say about him? Well, once again, we see decisively that salvation, this extending of mercy, is all about him. It's all about God. Because none of these groups, Jew or Gentile, deserve the mercy that they have received. And the timing in which God extends mercy to them, again, look at verse 32, God has consigned all to disobedience. Everyone is imprisoned by sin, Jew and Gentile. And so the timing with which God extends mercy to these people itself is undeserved. It shows that this mercy is undeserved for all kinds of people. Who would have thought that Gentiles would be the recipients of God's offer of mercy? Who would have thought it? And after we read, uh, after we read Acts 13 and beyond, who would have thought that the Jews would receive an extension of mercy? Who would have thought it? See what Paul's doing here? All of history is about God. And his sovereign plan to extend mercy to all kinds of people. But listen, this is not a mere theological lecture that Paul's giving. This isn't just, a, uh, this isn't just an unearthing of some, something deep and theological here. The unfolding of this mystery is not ultimate for Paul. He is writing to a real church made up of Jews and Gentiles. And for them, the fact that history is God's story serves a more important purpose. See, Paul knows that the war for the heart is a war against pride. Now look at verse 25. This is what sets the stage for everything that Paul says. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery. Do you see? The mystery isn't ultimate. The mystery serves the purpose, a pastoral purpose for Paul in the life of this church. Now, I take it here that he is still addressing Gentiles in this section because his concern is that they not think that God is now centering everything on them. They can't write off their Jewish brothers and sisters as the last remnants of a forgotten and abandoned people. Why? Because there's something more coming. There's something more yet to come in the future. See, God's not finished with Israel. And these Gentiles in this church in Rome... They already know that a remnant of Israel is being saved. That, that's who they're looking down upon uh, in the church. But Paul wants them to see God doing something bigger. And he wants them to see it in order that their pride might be crushed. That their pride might be crushed. It's kind of anticlimactic for Paul to say that the mystery 
that God is unveiling is what you've already seen. If all he's arguing is that a remnant of Israel is going to be saved, then he's undermining his purpose for writing. Because it's true, he argues uh, in the previous section, he argues elsewhere that there is one people of God, there is one olive tree. But if he blurs the lines here between Jews and Gentiles, if he blurs those lines in these verses, then he would actually be causing Gentiles to swell with pride. And what he wants to do is the opposite. He wants to destroy their pride. His whole point is to show these Gentiles that they are not the center of God's plan for human history. God is the center of God's plan. Here's how one commentator said it, Tom Schreiner. We need to recall that again, Paul communicates this mystery to forestall Gentile pride. Since the Gentiles were tempted to believe that God had chosen them because they were superior to Jews. Instead, God has planned salvation history in such a way that he would receive the maximum glory so that it would be evident to all that salvation is of the Lord. See, Paul wants Gentiles to know it's not about you. It's not about the Jews. It's about God. History is his story. And that's why he says to them, lest you be wise in your own sight. Lest you be wise in yourselves. If you have an NIV, uh, it interprets that, I think, correctly as lest you become conceited. Down in chapter 12, verse 16, he's going to use the same word uh, again. Uh, he says, live in harmony. Do not be haughty. Associate with the lowly. Don't be conceited. See, this is what he wants to destroy in these Gentiles. Who is wise? It's not you, Gentiles. It's not you. Who is wise? Well, let me sneak into Parag's territory. Just look at verse 33 real quick. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Who is wise? God is wise. It's about him. It's about him. And so Paul wants to destroy this sense of ethnic pride and exclusiveness that these Gentiles were feeling that was being stirred up within them. And listen, as for them, so it is for us. History is his story. It's about him. It's about God. It's not about us. And listen, as great as your story is, your story is just a word in his story. As great as your story is of receiving mercy from God, your story is just a small, tiny part of what God is doing in all of history. It's easy for us to feel that God's world revolves around us. The world tells us that. You're the man. It's all about you. Be who you want to be. And this is a great reminder to us that God is operating on a whole other plane. He is so much bigger. He is doing something so much bigger 
than we can possibly imagine when we boil everything down to us. Now look, there's no doubt that your story is meaningful. We've received mercy. But that's the point. We didn't deserve it. We didn't deserve it. That's what makes it mercy. The Gentiles in Rome, they didn't deserve God's mercy. The Jews, they were part of this remnant who were being saved. They didn't deserve God's mercy. Whatever future ethnic Jews repent and turn to Christ, they don't deserve God's mercy. The Irish don't deserve God's mercy. Uh, Americans don't deserve God's mercy. We are players in a bigger story of mercy that points to and highlights and underlines the glory of a God that is sovereign and good. History is his story. And so Paul intends, I think, for us to feel and act in response to this the way he intends his original audience to feel and act. And that is that we must punt our pride. We must put it aside and enjoy his mercy. Let me say it a little bit differently. To punt our pride, to, to put our pride aside so that we can enjoy his mercy. We must never be proud of what God has done in us. Isn't God lucky that he got me? We must never feel proud of what God has done in us. I heard this story. I'm sure it's uh, apocryphal. The former president of the U.S., George H.W. Uh, Bush, and his wife Barbara were in the presidential limousine going down the road, and they saw a man walking down the footpath that uh, Barbara used to date at an earlier time in her life. And George H.W., the president, said, aren't you lucky that you married me? I'm the president of the United States. And she said to him, oh, George, if I would have married that guy, he would be the president of the United States. Look, we, we can't be proud of what God has done in us, as if God, man, it was his lucky day when I trusted in Jesus. No, we should be surprised at what God has done in us. Why did he choose me? Don't know. We deserved nothing except his justice. It was his mercy that found us when we weren't even looking for it. And that's certainly true of Gentiles. We weren't even looking for his mercy. And it found us. And he saved us. How can we be arrogant? How can we take that wonderful news and think that it is only for me or only for people like me or people that I approve of? It wasn't ours. We should be surprised by mercy. And listen, the death of our pride opens the doors to the enjoyment of that mercy. Joy flows through surprise. It doesn't flow through pride. When you feel like you're getting something that you deserve, I mean, you can find all kinds of things to get upset about, can't you? When you feel like you deserve it, you can get upset. Well, some people can get upset 
when other people get to experience the good that you feel like you deserve. And that pride-fueled anger, it festers into bitterness and it eats away at your heart. It robs you of any sense of joy in what God has done. But listen, when you realize that you, what you've received had nothing to do with you, it creates a joy in you that sprouts into gratitude and thankfulness that cannot be contained. You actually want other people to experience it too. See, joy comes in realizing that God is sovereign. It's about Him. It's not about me. And so I wonder what, which of those characterize your life today? Is it pride? Isn't God lucky? Or is it joy? I can't believe that he extended mercy to me. Maybe you need the reminder today that history is his story. And your story, as great as it is, is just a word in his story. We're running out of time. I want to, my favorite short story uh, is by a lady named Flannery O'Connor. It's called Revelation. It's a story of a lady named Ms. Turpin who is, uh, she's a bigot. Let's be honest. She, she hates people that are not like her. And the whole story takes place in a, a, a GP's sitting room or waiting room as she's waiting to be, to be seen. And she goes around the room and each person, she's just judging them. Look at this person. Oh, look at this person. Hey, did, what? Who are they? In the very end of the story, the last paragraph of the short story, here's what happens. I just want to read this to you. Bear with me. She's looking at, she's a farmer. He's looking at her hogs, and she sees this vision. She lifted her head. There was only a purple streak in the sky cutting through a field of crimson and leading like an extension of the highway into the descending dusk. She raised her hands from the side of the pen in a gesture. A visionary light settled in her eyes. And she saw the streak as a vast bridge extending upward from the earth through a field of living fire. And upon the bridge, a vast horde of souls were rumbling toward heaven. There were whole companies of white trash, clean for the first time in their lives. There were bands of black people in white robes. There were battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping. And bringing up the very end of the procession, was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once as those who, like herself, had always had a little of everything and the God-given wit to use it right. She leaned forward and observed them closer. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were on key, and yet... She could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away 
And she lowered her hands and gripped the rail of the hog pen, her eyes small but fixed unblinkingly on what lay ahead. In a moment, the vision faded, but she remained where she was, immobile. And what did this lady see who thought she was better than everyone else? What did she see in that vision? Everything she thought made her better than everyone else was being burned away. And she found herself at the end of the queue. And all these people that she said don't deserve God's mercy, they were all going to heaven before her. And she was at the back end. Her pride was burned. It wasn't about her. It wasn't about her. And listen, history... It's his story. And your story is great. Praise the Lord for it. But it's a small part of what he's doing. And so you need to put away pride so that you can enjoy the mercy that he's extended to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. As we think about what you are doing in history in saving people who don't deserve it, all kinds of people, Father, we rightly think, why would you save me? And we don't know. (laughs) But we thank you, Father, that your mercy found us when we weren't even looking. And I pray, Father, that that mercy would well up in us a joy that is unquenchable. That it would lead us, Father, to wanting to see it extended to people around us, that you would use us as conduits of mercy in our daily lives, that you would help us, Father, to never forget that it is not about us. It is about you and what you are doing. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.